Bonjour GeoTruckers et bienvenue chez Acadiana. Hey GeoTruckers and welcome to Acadiana, that Cajun core of South Louisiana where we'll be hanging out for the next two GeoTrek podcast episodes with award-winning meteorologist Rob Perillo, who's based in Lafayette, Louisiana. We're going to have a lot of fun in these podcasts as we learn from Rob's 33 years of weather broadcasting experience. Not only will we hear seasoned perspectives on how to forecast and communicate extreme weather better, but Rob shares a lot of practical insights on disaster prep for people everywhere, whether they're vulnerable to hurricanes or some other natural hazard. If you're new to the show, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, if um, you can really help us out and keep us on the air by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform to the GeoTrack podcast, your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrack podcast in the future. Okay, we'll pull up a big bowl of gumbo as we start this interview with Rob Perillo. Gumbo is a cold weather tradition in Louisiana. I know we're getting into late fall and winter right, winter right now, so it'll help warm you up as you listen to Rob's insights about weather and disaster preparation. A more formal introduction of this week's guest, Rob Perillo is the chief meteorologist for KATC TV3's Acadiana's News Channel. Rob has 33 years of experience in forecasting Acadiana's weather and has tracked hundreds of tropical storms and hurricanes during his career, including major Louisiana and Acadiana storms such as Andrew, Lily, Katrina, Rita, Gustav, Ike, Laura, Delta, and Ida. That's a lot of storms that have impacted the region in recent decades. Rob is the most honored meteorologist in Louisiana and the recipient of more than 25 Associated Press Awards, including the Best Weathercast, Breaking Weather, and Best Meteorologist categories in Louisiana and Mississippi. Most recently, Rob was nominated for an Emmy Award for hurricane coverage in the year 2020. Rob was named Broadcaster of the Year in 2020 by the National Tropical Weather Conference, was a finalist and the only broadcast meteorologist in the country for Weather Person of the Year in 2021 by the Federal Alliance of Safe Homes. Rob, so great to have you on the GeoTrek podcast. Oh, Hal, thanks so much. It's such an honor to be here with such uh, esteemed guests as you had in the past. Uh, I feel blessed that you've lowered your standards, at least for this podcast. Well, I can't wait to talk to you, Rob. You, I've, I've had many people say, you need to bring Rob Perillo on your podcast just because you have so much uh, background experience. I know you've won a lot of awards. We'll get all into that in this episode. But I wanted to start in your earlier years. So could you explain where you grew up and where your interest in weather and climate began? Well, you know, it's, it's always uh, a little bit of a, a weather event. Um, uh, originally, I'm from the Bronx, but we moved to the suburbs in Rockland County, Nanuet, New York. Go Nanuet Nights uh, back in uh, the mid-60s. And the first couple of days that we were there, there was a severe thunderstorm. We were in this new house. It didn't have storm windows, so rain was coming inside the windows. And it was a severe thunderstorm, and it scared the heck out of me. And I was probably five or six. 
And thereafter, I was always on alert for thunderstorm activity because it, uh, it scared me, but it also interested me big time. And from there on, I was always interested in weather. I was interested in oceanography. Of course, a child of the mid to late 60s, you want to be a baseball player, an astronaut. Uh, but you had uh, Jacques Cousteau on TV, and, and, and he opened up the whole world of, of oceanography and earth science. And then it's like, I think I want to be an oceanographer. And then it just progressed up into meteorology. By the time I was in middle school, I was calling uh, snowstorms in Rockland County before uh, the TV guys were doing it in New York City. And, uh, and then I got hooked on, on forecasting and just being able to try to game the system of, of atmospheric chaos. So it sounds like you were really plugged in. You were engaged. This is what you wanted to do. And then you studied that as an undergrad up in up at SUNY Oswego, right? Yeah, I went to Oswego and I chose Oswego uh, mainly. Well, one, it was a state school, so it was relatively cheap. And I had a region scholarship and a few other small scholarships for state school. And uh, Oswego had the highest annual uh, average snow of 144 inches per year, which beat out Albany and Buffalo and uh, Brockport, all the, all the schools that offered meteorology. So that's uh, the main reason why I went to Oswego. I wanted to see some snow. So yeah, Oswego's right up there, right off of Lake Ontario, north and west of Syracuse, and you get tremendous lake snows up there. I mean, what's the biggest snowstorm you can recall up there during your time? Well, it was probably the last winter I was in upstate New York, uh, and the main driving factor while, uh, why I wound up setting resumes to the south. After I graduated, I uh, I did actually a little research and I uh, was working for the New York Power Authority doing some uh, emergency planning meteorology. And uh, every winter I was up there during, while I was in school, uh, there, there are two that stand out. One, we had an ice storm where we had about four or five inches of ice. A foot of snow fell on top of that. And then another couple of inches of ice on top of that. You couldn't go anywhere. And that is the one and only day Oswego canceled classes in my uh, four and a half year trek there. Um, it, it was a debilitating uh, winter event. And that, you know, all that ice got so hard, it was so hard to remove. Uh, but um, I have to say it, it was probably the uh, winter of 84-85 where uh, we had a three-day 50-55 inch snowfall and and this is the main reason why I kind of left out so we go uh, every day from the last week of uh, December through the first uh, week of February it snowed sometimes it was a flurry the lake effect then was ever-present some days you get a dusting, other days you get two or three inches. And then during that period, uh, you had a couple of foot, foot and a half snowstorms. And, and we accrued during that period a, a little over maybe two weeks over a full uh, two months over 100 inches that winter. And all I remember is getting up and uh, I'm working my research job. I would get out, try to, oh, I can get that car out. Couldn't get it out, would have to shovel for two hours. <laughs> go back in, take another shower, go to work late, and then have to work late into the evening to make up for the time that I missed. So uh, definitely the winter of 84, 85, I just had it by the time March rolled around. And it's like, well, let me, let me uh, see if I want to do something else in a warmer climate. Um, but there were a number of mitigating factors going on at the time. I was working at uh, the New York Power Authority uh, in case they released radiation. It was my job to write the procedures based on their MET data. And that time, uh, the dispersion models didn't have any local meteorology built in. The, the, the dispersion models were flat land, no water nearby in case they released something. Uh, you know, the lake, the lake uh, influenced 
the area 30, 40% of the time. So we had to uh, develop uh, some coastal metal scale regimes that we could put into these uh, 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 class A models to help uh, kind of determine where uh, radiation might go in case there would be an accident. So it was, a, and, and at that time, there wasn't an offsite meteorology uh, department. It was in the control room and about six months into the job, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, if we have a nuclear accident, it's my job to drive right to the dang <laughs> station and, and start procedures on monitoring and start putting this into the dispersion models. And uh, um, let's say the culture at that time was not quite there. Um, it was a lot of practicing for NRC uh, monitored uh, practices, and we practiced for practices for practices that would eventually be monitored by, by the NRC, and uh, it was not quite organized as it is today. This is coming off um, yeah. a, a Three Mile Island back in the late 70s, where they were starting to say, hey, man, if, if, if we release radiation, we, got, we need to know where it's going to go. Yeah, Rob, that's really interesting. A lot of people don't even think about dispersion models, and, and maybe we just assume there'd be meteorology built into that. But, you know, like a strong west wind, you're going to have a different dispersion than a strong east wind, right? So right, exactly. a big part of that. Exactly. And uh, these, uh, well, Niagara Mohawk was up there too, but New York Power Authority, it's in Lycoming, which is just northeast of, of Oswego, right on the lake. So you had to factor in lake breeze, land breeze, all these different uh, mesoscale processes that were going on, uh, including, you know, lake effect snow bands, that sort of thing. So uh, that's what I was tasked with doing after I graduated. I, I worked uh, in concert with the SUNY Research Foundation and did work for the New York Power Authority. And then uh, uh, I worked part time for them. And then I, there was a job that came up with Niagara Mohawk for a full time meteorologist that paid much more than $13,000 a year that I was making at that time. And, and I didn't get the job. And I was told, hey, you know, we got a guy that's married, got kids and, and lives close by. So, um, uh, but, you know, if you took this job, it would, you, you'd never move up or whatever. And, and that was coincidentally at the same time we were having all this snow. And it's like, well, maybe I need to start looking. Um, see what else is out there. So I just pulled out the old AMS bulletin and went in the back of the bulletin. And, you know, they have all the uh, companies that are listed as uh, AMS members and uh, wound up sending resumes out to about a hundred folks. And I got about two or three answers out of that. So, so you were pretty open to moving anywhere, right? It sounds like you were hoping for something maybe a little warmer and less snow than the lake effect snow build up there in upstate New York. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, everything's born out of failure. I also interviewed for a job at the time, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the big sailing uh, deal, the America's Cup uh, was lost that year to the Australians and the following year was going to be in Australia. And I actually interviewed for a job to develop coastal mesoscale regimes off the coast of Australia so they could build a faster boat. So I was already thinking about moving and going to a warm weather climate at that time. Did not get that job either. Uh, but uh, uh, it led me to the path that I've had, and I have no regrets otherwise. Rob, you've been in South Louisiana for a long time. Did you, was that your first position after living in upstate New York, or did you, did you zigzag a bit? 
before. Well, I did. It, 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 it was a circuitous route. I wound up getting a, a, a call back from Wilkins Weather Technologies out of Houston back in 85. And I didn't know anything about tropical weather and they served marine and offshore technology. I, I don't know Wilkins if they're still around or not, but uh, kind of like impact weather, come a couple of those private consulting firms that forecast for site specific forecasts for rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico, all around the world. Uh, did some shipping stuff. So that's how I got down to the south. I moved to Houston in 85. And of course, that is the same time when uh, the oil prices dropped. So I came into this job not knowing much tropical meteorology, getting my feet wet, just sending out faxes for other meteorologists who were making the forecast to making the forecast to going back to sending faxes out because our uh, clientele shrunk. Uh, so the parent company, Air Rooting um, International, uh, had a position opening for an aviation meteorologist. So I switched over there before I became any kind of uh, job cut uh, 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 casualty. So, uh, and that's what I did for two years. And uh, while doing business aviation, it was really cool. That job, I can't wait to put that in a book because I got to brief astronaut, every astronaut that was a pilot in the in the program, uh, the shuttle program, we briefed them on on just practicing with their T-38s, we forecast of a vomit comet, and we did some shuttle support before the Challenger accident. But uh, we had everything from military to Frank Sinatra and Michael Jackson's plane and the Sheikah Brunei and Adnan Koshegi. So it was a cool job, but you always have to worry about diplomatic clearances, flight path, and, and there was always stuff going on. So it was a very stressful job. But at the same time, Buddy of mine, Mark Skirto, who was a chief meteorologist up in uh, KLTV up in Tyler, Texas, he was going to a local TV station and he was trying to break into television. So I went down with him one day and I saw one, uh, everybody was driving a nicer car than me that worked at the station. And there were a lot more attractive women that worked at the TV station as compared to me working with a bunch of ex-Navy Air Force guys uh, and ex-air traffic controllers, uh, all lead leading high-stress jobs. So uh, that's kind of why I, I, I decided, well, let me try TV. And I thought it'd sound cool if I was out in the bars and, you know, somebody would come up, hey, what do you do? Well, I'm a TV weatherman, you know. So uh, that, well, that was the main impetus at age 26. And I put myself on a reel. And about a year later, I got a call from the CBS affiliate in Lafayette. I was a cheap ride out from Houston for an interview and they offered me a position for a weekend job. And I worked at that CBS station for 16 years um, and then uh, was lured over to the ABC affiliate and I've been with them. I'm going to be entering my 20th year coming up. Rob, what was it like, you know, working for the first time in South Louisiana? It's just a, a very uh, you, you had some introduction, obviously, to the Gulf Coast with Houston. I'm, I'm guessing that helped learning yeah. this warm subtropical climate, learning about the Gulf of Mexico and, and tropical weather, things like that. I'm guessing that kind of primed you for some work there in South Louisiana. That's right. Now, now you're from Galveston, and, and during my time in Houston, I went one day down to Galveston. It, was, it had to been somewhere in August, and I couldn't believe how raunchy 80 degree dew points felt <laughs> and moving to Louisiana there's a difference in climatologically from Houston to uh, Louisiana the humidity is up a notch the temperatures are down a little bit so you get used to that thick thick air but uh, moving to Lafayette was also a cultural experience because of uh, uh, the Acadian the Creole culture here it's like nowhere else on in the United States there's a there's a French speaking culture there's a, a mix 
and you know, for, it starts at New Orleans and it spreads all through Southern Louisiana. So it's a big gumbo pot of uh, a whole different folks that uh, it's kind of our own little sphere because, uh, you know, it's not unusual for me to go out to see a band and uh, half of the half of the bands are still uh, playing and singing in French. So, uh, uh, and that was the first show I got on when I got into television. The first half hour was, the show was called Pas Pas Two. The first half hour was in French. And I was worried that I couldn't even broadcast in English. And the first half hour was in French. And then the next, uh, the next uh, 90 minutes was in English. But uh, uh, I kind of threw myself into the mix of the TV world. And so glad I did. It, it was for better hours. And uh, as an applied forecaster, you get to see the manifestation of your work. I would forecast that those previous jobs all around the world never get to see uh, any kind of verification other than if the pilot liked the, the forecast or the, or the ship captain liked the forecast, or if he didn't like the forecast, you got that feedback as well. I see. So you're saying with the previous forecasting work you did, you put in numbers, you put in a forecast, and you hope it was right. You weren't really getting feedback. With, with broadcast meteorology, you get feedback right away, right? Oh, it's instantaneous. It used to be just via the phone. Now it's uh, via social media. You get instantaneous feedback uh, all the time. And, uh, uh, but that's, that's great too. You know, everybody kind of bashes social media, but I, I think it's a great crowdsourcing uh, tool. Even Twitter still, uh, I like to leverage uh, and Facebook uh, gets the word out to a wider audience as well. Rob, you've been in South Louisiana for a long time. Does that help you? Like once you've been in a place, say five, 10 years plus, I'm guessing you get a lot of credibility with the audience, but also once you've seen a lot of summers and a lot of seasonal cycles, right? You probably start feeling more comfortable with forecasting the weather coming up as well. Yeah, you do. And, but you still wind up asking yourself, why the heck am I doing this when I know the forecast potential on this particular forecast or that particular forecast has a high buff potential? But it's, to me, it's a challenge, you know, moving to the Gulf Coast. It's kind of like the major leagues of, of weather dynamics because you run the severe weather threats to uh, hurricane threats. And um, it is, is very satisfying, at least from uh, a career standpoint, to uh, be here. Uh, yeah, you get to know the places, you get to know the trouble spots, you, you know which areas are going to tend to flood first, uh, who's most vulnerable to storm surge, how is this going to work, and uh, the longer that you're here, the, uh, the, the, the better you can serve your community for sure, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I never really wanted to leave once I got there. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember moving from the northern states of South Louisiana. I was amazed how, how warm and welcoming the people were. And, uh, you know, Cajun people have this warm, big heart, but then they're also really tough and resilient. You know, it's a really cool culture there, you know. It's well, you know, and that's what's made my job easier because there's like this climatological a database of history where people can tell you what they were doing in Hurricane Lillian 202, what was happening in Andrew. I still talk to people that were in Hurricane Audrey or Hurricane Betsy and, and uh, you make these connections and, and people really get what's going on when we do have uh, something threatening. So it, it, I, I haven't had to spoon feed weather information to our crowd because one, 
We don't have a whole lot of people that are coming in here, but we do have everybody that lives here stays here. So the population is growing, uh, but everybody's got this climatological database where they know if it's a cat one or two, oh well, yeah, we'll probably try to ride it out if we're inland out of the storm surge zone. And, and uh, unfortunately with the recent uh, 15, 20 years, everybody knows if it's a cat four, three, four or five, you know what? No, I think we're gonna be evacuating. That's one thing I've, I've noticed uh, over the last several years is that we always used to say flee from the water and the storm surge. Now, if it's a cat four, three or four, it's like you better flee for, from that 100 mile an hour zone where you're gonna have uh, the donut of the first uh, order or second order rain bands impacting your area because you can easily generate uh, those major hurricane winds and they are damaging and they last a long time. They last hours instead of a 10 minute uh, tornado. Well, Rob, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, I, I knew I knew things were getting bad in Louisiana when I traveled to places like Florida, you know, and people would say, oh, those poor people in Louisiana, anywhere I went that has a hurricane threat for years was like talking about Louisiana. I mean, you had such such a hyperactive hurricane history there with Lily in 02, uh, getting into 05 with Rita and then Ike and Gustav and, and right through all these storms, even the, the unnamed hybrid storm from Lafayette over right. Baton Rouge, you got 30 plus inches of rain in 2016. Then obviously these last few years with Laura and Delta and, it, and Ida, and it just keeps going on. I mean, what um, what's your take on that? I mean, you, you've, you've, You've navigated and the culture around you one of the most hyperactive periods that people anywhere in the history of, of hurricane history have ever endured. I mean, what's your thought as you think through that, the perspective, the big picture of what that means? Well, I, I would tell you if the, the next 15 years is as bad as the last 15 years, I'll be retiring sooner than later. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you learn that each storm is different. Um, uh, one thing I've learned is that if you're at least 100 miles away from the eye of the storm, you can have a pretty nice day and not much weather going on, but then you know how storms are asymmetric and you can get a lot of weather on, you know, say a storm that's hitting the upper Texas coast. We can have a pretty huge surge and we can have some big wind and, and nasty rain beds, but uh, it's being in the core of that hurricane and the decaying eye. I got to ride out uh, the decaying eye in, in, uh, in Lily in 02, went right overhead and we had gustnadoes. Uh, we had a gustnado that hit the station and the tower fell on the station while I was in the back of the weather department. I thought it was the radar that fell on the station. And uh, it was 150, 120 mile an hour gustnado that came on through. And, and you remember stuff like that, but everybody else does as well. Um, you know, you, I, I'm always talking about taking a survey of trees around your home because uh, those are the number one killers generally outside of tropical, uh, outside of the storm surge maybe electrocutions, and, and certainly now we're concentrating more on uh, the fatalities and the injuries post-storm uh, that we can't talk about enough before the storm comes in, but there's so many things going on before the storm comes in, it kind of goes to the back burner, but we, we really start, and, and, and when you're doing continuous coverage, you start talking about that um, in, in every hour of every hour of coverage that you do. Um, and I learned that, you know, it doesn't take a named storm to have a major event, that unnamed storm that produced that rainfall. Um, uh, my house flooded in that. In fact, uh, I let, the Friday that uh, we had a first 10 or 11 inches, I uh, had, and it all came in about six hours. I had two cars flooded in my front yard and the water was coming in the garage 
And it's like, I have to go to shift. I have to go to work. So I had to wade through about a quarter mile through water to get a ride because the, the water in my street was three and a half, four feet deep. There was no driving through it. And um, knowing that the next day, well, there's a chance it's going to flood. I got my family out uh, uh, that Saturday and we had another 10 or 11 inch rain. And my neighbor across the street took a picture and showed me water was about uh, one inch from coming in my house. And then, of course, there was this last vestige of a slow-moving storm wrapping around this low-pressure circulation that was not quite a depression, although I think it was a depression at some point. It sat on my house for one hour, dumped four inches of rain, and I had exactly three inches of water in my house. And then the water went back down pretty quickly. But once you get water in your house on that much, it, it becomes a major event. And you're moving everything out of your house inside of three days so you can uh, do all the sheetrock work and start rebuilding from scratch. So it was, a, it was a lesson. It was a good lesson on what it's like to be a victim of a storm <clears throat> and know all the factors that follow and being out of your home for eight months <clears throat> and all the consternation that comes with trying to find somebody to help rebuild your home and get back into it as soon as possible. Rob, I'm really sorry to hear that you <clears throat> flooded in that 2016 storm. It sounds like it was exceptional flooding that your home flooded and it did not flood from any of those other events, it sounds like. Was that the case of a lot of people in your area? Like this was the, the one storm that they flooded from in recent memory. Uh, correct. We've had some big rain events, you know, uh, these 50, 60, 70 year rainfall events. And of course, you know, uh, Lafayette is not is, is like Houston in some degrees where we continue to build. Uh, but uh, we have a lot of green space as well. So you really have to have a big flood to flood a lot of homes. And that's certainly the case. Now, over the years, I've lost shingles off the house in Lily, a few in Rita, um, none in Laura, but a few uh, uh, in Delta. Um, and, you know, that, that comes with the territory. Everybody's kind of used to that. But uh, uh, when you do have water in your home, that, that becomes, and when you're flushed out of your home, it's, it, it's a different uh, level of, of, of trying to uh, recuperate and then try to mitigate what's going to happen in the future. Sure. And just the, the long-term impact of it, right? You're talking many months, you know, to get um, your feet back on the ground. Rob, I wanted to ask you, I'm really interested when you when you reminded people that trees can be a big killer or big damage producer, you know, and doing a survey of your property and the trees, do you do that when there's a storm in the Gulf or is that something you remind people of like pre-season? Do you encourage maybe trimming or cutting down sick trees or, or damaged trees? I mean, walk us through this messaging that you do with your, your audience. Yeah. Yeah, we've done that in the past on some hurricane specials, um, you know, leading up. Uh, uh, it's, it's about taking, uh, you know, uh, uh, stock in, in, in how your house is prepared. And I talk about that, especially when I go out and talk to the civic groups and everything, you know, just, you know, very simple things. Uh, and one of the things I noticed, like with Hurricane uh, Laura, is that there were many uncovered windows that survived the storm that had roofs that were completely ripped off. You know, uh, it's, it's not, you, don't be bother taping your windows. I stopped even boarding my windows because usually when you get the dynamics in place, you have to worry about your roof coming off and, and some simple things such as hurricane clips and straps when you're building your home, you can retrofit it for a few thousand dollars, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then and then taking stock of the trees around your home. Are they live oaks? Are they water oaks? Water oaks shoot up fast, but they come down fast as well. And that's what you see. Uh, 
80% of the trees that come down around here during these hurricanes are usually about 20, 30 year old water oaks that are 40, 50 feet high and they grew, you know, five, eight feet a year type of thing. They, they just grow so fast and the rooting system is awfully shallow. Yeah, that's right. We had a lot of those down in Baton Rouge during Hurricane Gustav. They just don't have a, a deep rooting system and they often come down in these big wind events. Right, and, and most of the fatalities that we've seen in Acadiana um, Acadiana, just to give you a visual, we cover from Morgan City all the way over to Cameron and northward to uh, Alexandria. So we're covering uh, roughly a third of the state of uh, the southwestern, south central quadrant of the state. But I always reiterate about uh, trees that uh, uh, take stock in the trees that are around your home. What's going to be the worst wind direction? Uh, you know, are we having a storm that's uh, just missing us to the east? So uh, if you've got any trees on the north side of your home, they could be uh, coming down in the direction of your home. And, and of all the years, I would say we've had more tree fatalities in all the storms that you listed earlier than any other um, fatality. Now, getting into uh, especially uh, Ida, Laura, there are a lot of uh, post-storm uh, fatalities from heart attacks, uh, overexertion, and high heat. Those are, the, those are such killers uh, after the storm where it's just so stinking hot and nobody has power. And you have middle-aged people out there trying to, uh, you know, remediate uh, the, their home and uh, move trees. And, and uh, it, it's just a sad situation to see because there's no there's no real medical support uh the first few days after a storm you're out there and it you know you you've been just knocked back to the stone age and you're just trying to get a uh, uh, tarp over your roof and trying to protect your home the best you can before you can get some help yeah you've really i think depicted the situation clearly that people may not have emergency services and often it's those impacts in the days after the storm right uh, snake bites, carbon monoxide poisoning, no air conditioning at home. It's uh, a lot of times if people can survive the, the day of the storm itself, they feel like they may be home free, but their problems may just be starting, right? Yeah, and that's what we're, that's what we've seen here in Louisiana over the last uh, 10 storms. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, people are smart enough, you know, our coastal uh, uh, coastline is so shallow. It's such an easy slope that everybody knows these uh, big storm surges are issues. We had that first with Rita and then three years later with Ike, these massive inundations. And I, I, I don't have a study in front of me, but I can tell you 1,500, 1,800 square miles are all Gulf of Mexico where people live and roadways. It all becomes the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so even Laura, even though the surge was more pointed, it was tremendous to see these 20-foot surges. But people get out of the way. Generally, most people get out of the way of the surge. Uh, so that in itself is good news. Rob, I was talking with Jonathan Brazell with the National Weather Service. <clears throat> he was talking about advising someone down in Delcom, Louisiana in 2008. And this person said, you mean to tell me a Category 2 hurricane hitting Galveston, Texas is going to put salt water and he said, absolutely, it will. And it did. I mean, right. for, for these, for a storm like Ike that geographically is enormous, um, do you feel, did that blindside a lot of people? You feel like in South Louisiana thinking maybe this would be more of a Texas storm? Or do you think by that point, you know, people really have this recollection how dangerous the right side of the storm is? No. Yeah. Well, I was touting the storm beforehand that uh, there's going to be a storm surge. Uh, it's going to be, it could be very similar to Rita. It's not going to have 
it's not going to have uh, battering waves and winds. Although the, you know we had some wind and all with Ike, but uh, it was a it was a slow it was a slow roll on that uh, that storm surge where uh, even 24 hours after the storm, people said they were okay, and then four hours later they're calling and and the phones are lighting up. The water's rising. The water's rising. It's coming up again, and. Um, and it, it, it was, um, it, it's a great exercise, at least a meteorological, in, in studying meteorology to see how these storm surges, uh, they may be pointed when they go in, but if it's a slower moving storm, that surge can spread out and cover, and ice surge cover the entire South Louisiana coastline, as did Rita. Um, with, and, and you're talking not just within a few uh, blocks of uh, the shoreline, you're talking about water penetrating 10, 15, uh, 20 miles and over toward Lake Charles, 30 miles. So you're inundating huge, huge square mileage with this water. And once the water comes up, you can't do anything until the water goes down, you become stuck in your home. And a lot of people were, uh, were had a hard time believing that Ike was going to do similar to what Rita did three years earlier, and 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 then it was even more depressing after Hurricane Laura going down Highway 82 and going through Coastal Cameron, uh, Vermilion, and Cameron Parishes. The same houses I saw wrecked. Hurricane Rita rebuilt, wrecked again. Hurricane Ike, and then that they built their house again. They built it up higher on stilts in Laura, and still the property completely destroyed. Well, so in some of these cases, people having losses three times in basically 15 years. Right, right. And, and a lot of folks, that's, they, they know that going in. It might be a camp. There are still people that live down there. But when I first moved to Lafayette, you, you go down to, say, uh, Pecan Island. There's a, there was a school down there. There was a community, the grocery store. Uh, uh, there were close to 1,000 people that lived down there. I think after Hurricane Ike, that was whittled down to 30. Now I don't even know if they, we have a handful of people that still live down there. So it's been interesting during my 33, 34 years in South Louisiana, seeing the geopolitical differences and how the populations are moving, how Cameron is, is building everything 18 feet or higher because there's still 3,000 people that work out of there and live down there. So uh, it's interesting to see how we are, we are adapting to it and how we've seen these coastal population shift to the north. I did a, a, a talk at the, one of the AMS conferences about four or five years ago, just showing how the populations of our coastal parishes have been going down, yet Lafayette, Acadia Parish to the west, St. Martin Parish to the east, and the parishes to the north are seeing uh, pretty good growth rates, uh, uh, much, much higher than the state average. So you can see people actually migrating further and further away from the coast. So, Rob, it sounds like you're saying in a lot of these coastal parishes, people are moving up maybe more towards the I-10 corridor, but where people have stayed, in a lot of cases, they're building higher and stronger. That is correct. That is correct. And there are some good examples, even post uh, Hurricane Laura, where uh, the library down in Cameron Parish, I think, was built to 18 or 19 feet. And it sustained very little damage. But anything that was below 10 or 15 feet took it on and, and, and was either destroyed or heavily damaged. I remember... I remember measuring high watermarks right under that library. You could see a lot of rafted debris, but it was amazing seeing how much stuff was up high there. And, and even right. some of the camps too built really strong and high. I mean, you could, you could tell there was a solid 
I don't know, maybe nine feet of salt water flowing fast across the landscape. But it's amazing how many buildings survived in there. And I thought this is just things that were built higher and stronger even after Rita and Ike. Yeah, and it can be done. It's expensive uh, when you're building. Uh, it can be very expensive, especially when you're building up on um, pilings and, and um, what do you do? Are you doing um, telephone pole style pilings? Are you doing concrete pilings and how far are those going down into the ground? Uh, it can be done there. I did see one uh, camp, a very nice house that uh, looked like it was built to good stringent uh, hurricane standards and there was very little damage to the roof. Uh, they, they, I don't know if they took on water down at lower levels, but they were up 15 or 18 feet. This is closer to Grand Chenier, a little bit east of Grand Chenier, uh, where lower surge was the highest. I, I figured at that location, there was about 12 or 14 feet of water. Uh, but it is amazing when you go to a few spots and you see, my gosh, I'm seeing thatch 21, 22 feet up in, in those old live oaks. Uh, so you really have a, a, a visual on, on what that, how high that water came up. Wow, Rob, we covered so much ground on this podcast episode. Really great stuff here. I wanted to comment on three discussion points we made in the podcast. Number one, we try to provide practical career advice for students and young professionals with an interest in meteorology and disaster science on the GeoTrek podcast. A lot of this advice is general perspective on tips for transitioning from school to the professional world. Did you catch what Rob said about his job applications after graduating from college? He said he applied to around 100 organizations that were affiliated with the American Meteorological Society, and about two or three of them replied to his inquiry. Let's unpack this for a bit. I often talk to college seniors or recent graduates who are discouraged because their job search is not going well. At some point, they'll say something like, wow, I've applied for like eight or nine positions and nothing's worked out yet. And they're, they're feeling discouraged, possibly ready to give up hope because they expected to get a more positive response from prospective employers after years of hard work and good grades. I have two comments about this topic. Number one, note that Rob initiated with around 100 organizations and only heard back from two or three. For young professionals who have reached out to say eight or 10 prospective employers, you need to expand that list sometimes, keep reaching out and possibly expand your geography as well. To get a company to engage with you on this topic, not only do you have to be a good fit for them, but the time has to be right as well. Perhaps through a former staff member retiring or moving away and a job opportunity opens up. So don't give up and keep at it. Persistence pays off as we hear with Rob's story here. Number two, networking is a key practice that will help you improve that ratio of jobs applied to jobs attained. A personal connection with a university faculty or staff or other professionals, both in supervisor and peer roles, will help you open doors. This is why participating in conferences and workshops is so important. But even right where you are, you can make a difference building relationships with a wide variety of people in your field. So if you're, say, a university student, getting to know your professors, going to their office hours, that they know who you are, that can actually make a difference. That's how I got my first job, actually. I had applied for probably 45 positions and did not hear back from any of them. So when I heard that Rob got two or three responses out of 100, I'm like, how did he pull that off? I got zero out of 45, and it was actually through a university professor that I took a class from, a 
door opened up and I got my first job. So uh, keep that in mind. This has to do with professional development. Be persistent, but sometimes that ratio is a lot lower than we think, meaning you may have to put 40 or 50 inquiries out there to get a couple. So don't give up, don't be discouraged and keep persisting. That was my one comment about professional development. And it was cool to kind of hear Rob's story going from New York to Louisiana through Houston and how all of that played out. Like a lot of professionals, he had a bit of a zigzag path. And uh, it was just really cool though, how he got to the Gulf Coast and how that started opening doors for him eventually in South Louisiana. Number two, I wanted to comment that South Louisiana has been hit by numerous catastrophic storms over the past 15 to 20 years. I thought it was insightful that Rob shared the one storm that flooded his home did not even have a name. This confirms the perspective that you don't need a named storm to get severe damage. So let's talk about this a little bit. The National Hurricane Center gives names to tropical cyclones. These are storms that have a closed circulation around a well-defined center, and they're fueled by warm ocean or, or gulf water. These storms are their own entity. They have a warm core and they're not part of a larger frontal system. Once the winds around a tropical cyclone exceed 39 miles an hour, it's called a tropical storm and it gets a name. Winds exceeding 74 miles an hour make it to hurricane status and they keep that same name. And that's when we start the categories one through five once they're a hurricane. People often assume that named storms will always create more damage than unnamed storms. This especially becomes true once the media assigns a category number to a hurricane with higher numbers related to more wind damage. We can get so fixated on the category number and forget that this only relates to one metric. And that's really the metric of maximum sustained wind at its highest point, which really that those maximum winds could be over a, quite a small area. Rob reminded us, however, that we don't need a named storm to experience a disaster and even lower category storms or tropical storms. Again, those are tropical cyclones with winds less than 74 miles an hour sustained. They can still do a lot of damage. The one storm that flooded his community in the past 20 years was an unnamed storm in August 2016. Although it had some tropical characteristics, it was not a pure tropical cyclone, but rather more of a hybrid storm, according to Louisiana State climatologist Barry Kime. The storm dumped torrential rain from Acadiana parishes east to Metro Baton Rouge and south to the coastal parishes in Louisiana. Many people flooded in this storm that never flooded before, even though it was not a named storm. I lived in Baton Rouge for eight years. I rented a home that apparently had not flooded before and was not in FEMA's flood zone. I moved from Baton Rouge to Galveston in February 2016, just six months before this storm that Rob was talking about. When I returned to Baton Rouge for a visit, the homeowners where I had lived said they took on about 16 inches of water. The people in the community were still in shock. So Rob was talking about flooding over in Lafayette, over in Baton Rouge. They also got really terrible flooding from this event that was not a named storm. For those of us along the Gulf Coast and Southeast Atlantic, you may expect a named storm would be your biggest threat, but it's possible that an unnamed storm, especially in the spring or summer, could flood your home if the rainfall bullseye is in your community or region. So this reminds us to stay vigilant for flooding year-round and all throughout the summer, not just when a named storm appears. Stay tuned to your local meteorologist and the local National Weather Service for a flood forecast, especially if you're driving around at night. It only takes several inches of rain in a short amount of time, and all of a sudden you can have some flowing water over the road. 
Number three, I wanted to comment that we often say on the podcast that we cannot stop big storms from coming, but there are things we can do to get out ahead of a storm and minimize its impact. Rob shared a perspective that a large number of storm-related fatalities in South Louisiana come from tree falls. He mentioned that he encourages his audience to take stock of their home before a storm hits, and this includes assessing what trees you have that could potentially damage your home. He mentioned that water oak trees are particularly dangerous because they grow quickly up to 40 or 50 feet high, but do not develop a strong root system. They easily come down during hurricanes and tropical storms and can inflict serious injury or death, as well as destroying your home if they fall during a storm. I remember during Hurricane Gustav when I lived in Baton Rouge, our neighborhood endured sustained tropical storm force winds, probably sustained in the low 60s with gusts to the low 90s. So these were not officially sustained hurricane wind conditions. However, in our neighborhood, water oaks were down everywhere across roads, lawns, and in many times smashed through houses. This was from sustained tropical storm force winds. Consider this. The roof of your house might be built to withstand category two or three hurricane winds, but that big tree next to your house may go down in in weaker winds, like even tropical storm force winds or category one winds, especially if the soil is waterlogged. So a tree like a water oak next to your house could undo the great work you've done to invest in a better designed home, a better roof, or even like hurricane straps. These are adaptations to build better and endure hurricane force winds. But if you have a huge tree or a big enough tree that could fall on your house, that could undo a lot of that good work that you've done. This is just a heads up for those of you making landscaping decisions, moving to a new home, or assessing risk to your current home. We touched on this topic of trees last year in GeoTrek podcast with Eleanor Kitzman. We encourage you to listen to those if you can. She mentioned that there's a big danger with trees, especially if you live in a high-risk wind area like coastal counties or parishes along the Gulf Coast. We love trees. They provide us with shade. They cool us in the summer and birds are nesting. It's great to see trees, but if they're over your house, it can greatly introduce more risk of damage and even some death or injury in some cases. So just something to keep a heads up for. And I appreciate that Rob pointed that out and reminded us of that. Well, GeoTrek fans, that does it for this week's podcast. You don't want to miss next week's podcast when we come back here to Acadiana to meet back with Rob Perillo and cover part two of our conversation. In that episode, we're going to cover a lot of great insights he has on how to communicate and message well with meteorological and disaster forecasts. So we're going to talk a little bit about forecasting and how to message that and interact with your audience in this fast-paced age of social media. Our marketing team is Seneth Baker, Jeremiah Long, Ashley Anderson, Chris. Christopher Cook, Amy Wilkins, and Courtney Booker. I'm Dr. Howell, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.